This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Professor will be joining us towards the bottom half of the show, so Please stay tuned for, for that segment. Please note, I'm Marissa, representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We have an author, another professor um, from the Columbia Law School, uh, Professor Michael Heller, has written a book called Mine, uh, talking about the hidden rules of ownership and how they control our lives. Um, we also have one of my colleagues, Matthew Kress, who's the Director of Advisor Innovation at Wisdom Tree, focuses a lot on sort of uh, innovation and, and new technologies. And I know uh, Michael has some is going to have a little bit of interesting conversations here. Michael, welcome to Behind the Markets. It's great to be here with you. And Matt, thanks for joining me here for the discussion today. Looking forward to it. Um, so, Michael, we, we got your, your background. Maybe you could tell our, our listeners, you also have an, another book, The Gridlock Economy, How Too Much Ownership Wrecks Markets, Stops Innovation, Costs Lives. Maybe give our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got into studying these different ownership rules. Sure. So I'm a professor at Columbia Law School. So I teach about who gets what and why. And everything that I write about uh, circles around ownership, around the basic claims that we make to the scare stuff that we all, uh, that we all want. So I've written actually a number of books uh, where what I try to do in each of these is try to find uh, hidden rules that actually shape how our lives uh, work in ways that are kind of surprising and actually not that complicated uh, once, you see, uh, once you see them uh, laid out. So that's what the, the Gridlock book did about 10 years ago, and that's what mine does today, is it basically lays out for people some really simple rules that shape uh, our behavior uh, all day long. And, and you spent some time uh, at the World Bank and, and studying Eastern Europe. Any, you know, th- does that shape some of your views of ownership and sort of w- what we have here in the U.S. versus what, what was going on with, with communism and, and coming out of Eastern Europe? Absolutely. So before I went into law teaching, I spent about a decade on and off um, working in developing countries. And then I was usually part of, I was part of the first team to parachute in. Uh, to most uh, socialist countries as they were deciding to transition to capitalism uh, in the late 90s uh, and early, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, late 80s and early 90s. So I actually was working for the World Bank uh, then, and I was part of the team that went into um, uh, Romania, Hungary, Poland, and then a Soviet Union, while it was still the Soviet Union, to think about how do we actually create market economies uh, in these socialist uh, countries. So my job uh, as part of the, that team was to create uh, the very basic uh, understanding of what counted as private property rights. So I was involved in uh, defining property rights and then in um, all of the housing privatization in about uh, eight or ten countries. So my, my, my initial project was um, how do you create what it means to own and then be able to buy and sell and finance, uh, finance housing, specifically mostly in Russia, but also, also in Eastern Europe. Any any interesting takeaways there for us? Uh, as, as uh, the answer is uh, don't uh, you know don't don't uh, don't experiment too much with with, with communism. It, it was really um, uh, in the early '90s. There, it was like trying to make uh, fish um, uh, out of fish soup, which is hard to do. Uh, turning fish into fish soup is pretty easy. You can uh, cut up capitalism pretty easily, but recreating a capitalist system from from a socialist one was a very brutal and painful and complicated and still uncompleted uh, process. It was always very interesting working in those countries because um, we were trying to really, we were working at the very fundamental level of what it meant to uh, own uh, anything. You know, uh, people owned their toothbrushes 
uh, under communism, but, but not really very much more. So my job was to think about even just creating the, the terms. We, a, a lot of the initial work was just um, figuring out words in Russian or Romanian or Albanian for mortgage or foreclosure uh, or um, lease. All those terms had to be recreated from scratch as well. Um, well, let's get, let's turn to your book here, uh, and 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 maybe sort of talk through the some of the the basic stories that you talk about. Six dis- stories that describe ownership roles. I mean, how did you how did you come up with these uh, these general frameworks? Well, my co-author Jim Salzman and I have been teaching property for. Um, well, after I left the World Bank, I went into law teaching, um, and I've been teaching for quite a while now. I've taught thousands of students, uh, law students, business students. Uh, Jim teaches a lot of environmental law students. And one of the things that Jim and I realized over these years of teaching was that the apparent complexity of what it means to own something actually can be simplified and streamlined down to, it turns out, uh, just six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything. So our book is organized um, around that, around the notion that um, just behind all of the complexity uh, in the financial world that you guys work in and the, t- and the real estate, more tangible world that I work in, um, on the playground with little kids, no matter where you are, past, present, and I hope, I believe, in the future, it's all just six simple stories. So the, the, um, the notion of the book was to make what, we were, what my co-author and I were trying to do was basically do for ownership uh, what uh, Freakonomics did for economics. It basically uh, show people that there were a very simple set of rules uh, that uh, guided their lives in a very concrete way. That's really that's really fascinating that you could break it down to these six rules and six stories. Jumping into the, the first one, something that as I was reading and preparing it and looking, and this is first come, last served. We've seen, and, and you shared some stories of how it's evolved over time. How are some companies applying that, and can you dig a little deeper into how that's being uh, used today and, and evolved over time? Sure. So first come, first serve is one of the most primitive rules that we have for ownership. And this is what kids do on the playground. The swing, it's mine. Why is it mine? Because I was here first. But that notion of first in time turns out to be everywhere. It's in the Bible. You know, it's, it's the firstborn son used to get um, ownership. Um, it's uh, how kids uh, play on the playground. It's how satellites get put into a geosynchronous, geosynchronous orbit. Uh, first in time gets a satellite space. Um, so what we noticed is that um, savvy businesses today have figured out how to engineer all six of the basic ownership stories. And one of the stories that they've re-engineered is first in time. Instead of first in time being first served, more and more what you're seeing today is first in time is last served. So just one concrete example, when I took my family to uh, Disneyland actually two years ago before the pandemic, we waited in these endless lines uh, to to get into, you know, Space Mountain, um, the the roller coasters. Um, And what we realized later is that there actually were um, several other solutions for how Disney had engineered first in time. They created something called a fast pass that lets you get out of line where you're not spending money and has families circulating through the stores and eateries spending money and then going back later for a fixed uh, entrance time later in the day. So Disney figured out fast pass as a way to uh, get people out of line and back into spending money. That was a really smart move. But they did a next step for first come last served which is where they decided there's some, a lot of people are pretty well off and don't want to spend time in line at all, ever. And for them, what Disney did is they created the VIP pass, three to $5,000. And uh, what it, what that, the way that works is the guide will take you in through the exit um, or through a side door. So all the people who are still left waiting in line uh, don't even notice, don't even realize that Disney has, has created uh, three different systems for what it means to be first. There's most families just waiting in these endless lines, and then there's families that are using fast passes and VIP passes uh, to circumvent. So what Disney realized is that old-fashioned first-in-time, one of these basic stories, left too much money on the table. And they're a savvy company. They're, their whole business is around IP, around ownership. And what they did is they realized they could re-engineer ownership uh, to be much more valuable to them. Uh, that is, they could get most people spending time buying stuff in stores, or spending three to five thousand dollars for the special ticket, and the only there's a handful of people who are left with old-fashioned first-in-time, uh, still stuck in these endless lines. And that's it, true not just Disney; it's true across the economy where we're seeing uh, companies realizing that first-in-time uh, leaves too much money on the table, and they can re-engineer it for their benefit. 
you also talk about the companies allow sort of some stealing and sort of like this underground market. And, and actually in Disney, they have an underground market where there's all these guides who have connections and will help sell fast passes. And will like, there's this, this additional service that, you know, they're selling that you get this is not the official Disney guide, but all these other guides who will take you around and give you fast passes on demand. And, and it seems like they're probably, they know about it and they're just sort of looking the other way so that they get people, uh, Doing all the same stuff. Yeah. So what that means, what's happening? It's not. It's not just places like Disney. Whenever you see um, a uh, uh, a long line, there's probably some entrepreneur who is um, uh, figured out a way to monetize that line. Um, so uh, if you want to go, for example, to hear an argument at the Supreme Court, it's first come first serve. It's the best free show in Washington D.C. But the, but today, if you if any of us go in, um, there try to trade into the Supreme Court argument, you won't be able to get into it. Um, there's, a, there's companies like linestanding.com uh, that um, uh, charge up to $6,000 for lawyers and lobbyists to get access to those free seats. Uh, when you're waiting in line for a COVID shot or a COVID uh, vaccine, the same thing is true. In front of you today, there will often be people who are being paid uh, to wait in line. One of the advantages of first time, uh, first serve is that it's very easy to administer. Like, you know, you go to the deli, it's, you know, first in line, step on up. So it turns out that first in time is one of those um, uh, ideas about ownership that feels very simple. It feels very natural. Kids know what it means to be first in time. You don't need parents monitoring the swing by and large. But it's also one of those uh, uh, features of ownership that is very open to a revision and um, uh, improvement uh, or monetization, actually, uh, by, uh, by savvy businesses. So we, uh, one of our messages in the book is to really uh, tell people out in the world that uh, how, when they own something, when they think they're being first, uh, they should really be uh, alert to the ways in which ownership can be retooled uh, by them, by governments, uh, or by businesses uh, to basically capture more value or create more value. That's really fascinating. So when you think of, you mentioned the book and, and goals of it, what would you say your main goal of the book Mine is for the reader? Well, the main goal for this book is to have people feel much more empowered. A lot of times, especially you guys come in the financial world, so you say, well, that's a problem for the lawyers. And one of our messages is um, that ownership is actually not just a problem, it's an opportunity for business people, for governments, for each of us in our personal lives in ways that are much more immediate, much more tangible, something that we can really connect to in ways that are um, uh, not uh, limited simply to uh, lawyers. Uh, Jim and I uh, uh, published an article in Harvard Business Review, and this is the Wharton show, but in the Harvard Business Review uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, where we talk about um, how law is uh, highly overrated, that 99.99% of ownership conflicts that we have happen outside of the law, uh, not just in line for Disney or at the Starbucks, uh, but this is also true very much in the business world as well. And we give the example for, uh, uh, give us an example um, how Elon Musk, for example, uh, doesn't really use patents uh, for his SpaceX company. He's, he's left patents aside. Uh, for Tesla as well, he said to my competitors, come and use the patents. Uh, one of our points there is that the patent law, uh, which seems so legal itself, turns out to be highly overrated in many of the most cutting-edge uh, businesses. That's really fascinating. It's, it's interesting just thinking about how you can apply this and how it's, all these rules are applied to help businesses grow and and even thinking about the Tesla example, the SpaceX example, everything Elon Musk is doing. Something else that was really fascinating to me is when we were thinking about, you mentioned the endowment effect, and you mentioned how Apple and, and how really how the value of trying something, um, when, when someone feels like they own it, they value it more, right? And, and there's some really cool things there to think about. Can you explain a little bit more about that? But then also, um, we work with a lot of financial advisors. So is that something that they can use for their business too? This is great. So we've talked a little bit about first in time. So when you think, see two kids on the playground fighting over a shovel, and they're both saying, mine, mine. One kid is saying, mine, because I had it first. The other one is saying, it's mine, because I'm holding on to it. And that notion of holding on to it, possession, possession is nine-tenths of the law. That is one of the most primitive and powerful ownership strategies that all of us have. It actually traces back to our animal instincts that notion of territorial defense. Um, but going forward, away from territorial defense, away from kids to the adult business world, uh, that notion of mine is one that is very much open to uh, sort of retooling by businesses. So if you ever wonder, for example, why is it that Amazon 
um, no, sorry, the Amazon, that Apple um, has this sort of controlled chaos at the Apple Store where everyone's got their hands on the phones and their hands on the iPads. That's because Apple is a master of ownership design, and they're using, um, they're applying the Tversky and Kahneman notion of the endowment effect, which many of your listeners will be familiar with. The endowment effect comes from cognitive science, actually was developed in part at Wharton, um, or the notion of it. And it's the idea that when you're holding on to something, that notion of physical possession actually makes the thing more valuable. The classic experiment was where you'd hand a kid a mug um, and say, do you want to keep the mug, or here's five bucks. And the kid would say, this college student would say, I want to keep the mug. If you hand them five bucks and say, do you want to buy the mug, they'll say, I want to keep the five bucks. That they both value that mug above and below five dollars, depending on whether or, not hold, whether or not they're holding it. So that notion of the endowment effect turns out to be one of the key secrets for retailers, is you want to get products into your consumer's hands, because the mere fact that they're holding onto it actually leads them to change the value. Um, and that's true not just for tangible stuff, but potentially for intangible stuff. You answer your question about financial advisors. So here's how I'd answer that. I'd say that what's more important than giving them something like a financial plan or a simple portfolio is, and this, this is going to sound a little bit trivial to your audience, but I think this is true. Hand them a piece of paper. Hand them something physical and tangible. That, uh, that physical connection actually turns out still to be important. Even today when we live our lives so much online, that stream of ones and zeros, it turns out, doesn't register in the brain. doesn't actually register. Uh, bio, if, you, if you scan people's brains, um, for um, uh, their interaction with stuff, their interaction with physical, tangible stuff lights up a different part of the brain from uh, jokes or stories or intellectual property. So the intellectual property piece of what you're selling your clients doesn't light up their brain the way a pen or a piece of paper or a folder or something physical and tangible they can hold. You know, even, even the financial plan on a sheet of paper is going to be more valuable to them than the financial plan over an email. That may sound kind of barbaric and primitive, and like it's, that's too simple to really be true, but believe it or not, our brains are wired to hold on to physical, tangible stuff. This is a great transition to this next part of the conversation. We're talking with Michael Heller, who's author of Mine uh, and how these hidden rules of ownership uh, uh, control our lives. It's interesting, Michael, because it's, we're, we're getting into this digital world. We're not traveling anymore. We're doing Zoom meetings. Here, we're, I see you on a Teams conference call while we're talking on the radio. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. And you have, and you have one of the, the key things and, 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 the financial space now is people talking about digital assets and these non-fungible tokens and and sort of art being done. You had the $69 million Beeple that was purchased digitally online, and you compare that to actual art, and is the actual art going to be more or less valued? And you're saying the physical, the actual physical thing might be more valuable than the digital. How does this all come together? Well, this, this also goes to the second story. We started with first in time, and we've moved on to possession of nine-tenths of the law. So before I come to Beeple, let me, let me ask you, like, when you click, for example, buy now, it's not quite Beeple, but you click buy now on Amazon, like, what do you think you're getting? Like, you have that little shopping cart on the Amazon, and you have the buy now button, and you, and actually most of us, believe that when we click buy now, we're getting the same thing as, we're, as if we just bought an actual physical, tangible thing. So that when you download something to our Kindle, say a book or a movie, it's the same as if we bought the CD of the movie or a copy of the book. And that is not true at all. So as soon as you shift from the physical thing to this online stream of ones and zeros, not just affecting a different area of the brain, but what ownership means itself is changing. And Apple and Amazon um, are also quite sophisticated um, engineers of ownership in the same way that Disney was at the top of the hour on the show. So what Apple and, and, and Amazon have done is they figured out how to sell you much less than ownership. You get a very limited license when you buy a book online. Uh, and what that means is that Apple or Amazon can, and indeed they have, actually deleted books right off of people's devices. So your intuition, what they're counting on is your physical, tangible intuition, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. But online, it turns out that ownership is much more like one-tenth of the law. There was actually a study out of uh, UPenn, uh, not out of Wharton, as a psychology department that came out recently that showed that, that, showed that about 90% of us, 90% of us consumers, actually believe that we're buying the same thing when we download it online. 
And what that means for Apple and Amazon is that they're acquiring, they're earning an extra or unowned premium, which is the gap between what we feel like we own and what we actually own. We believe we own more than we do, and that means that we pay Amazon and we pay Apple more than we actually are getting in terms of ownership. So that shift online, it's just a simple you know, notion of downloading a book to your Kindle is magnified by 100 if we're going to move to crypto or NFTs, the next part of your question. So if you want to, should we, if we want to go there, um, should, we, should we move to that in that direction? That sounds good. All right. So let's go to NFTs and art. Um, I'm a skeptic. No, you probably on your show, my guess is you have a split. You have a, you know, uh, last week or next week, you probably have someone who's an NFT cheerleader. Um, and I don't know if that's something that's true at Wisdom Tree, where you guys are coming from. Uh, so I'm you know, talking so, about ETH on the next podcast here, right after see, this there one. There we go. So let's go. So that's, that, that's, 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 that's part of the joy of having the, your kinds of radio shows. You, you can hear a lot of perspectives. So for me, um, uh, as an ownership guy, what NFTs do is they combine the worst of crypto and the worst of art to make a mashup that is truly terrible. Um, so what, what, what do I mean by that? Um, um, so uh, uh, crypt, the digital art was, has been one of our most creative and most democratic media of art. Not coming from the finance side, coming from the art side. Like, this is a space where people play and grow and change and actually have been, it's been a very open, dynamic body of uh, sort of cultural expression. Um, now, what NFTs try to do is basically monetize uh, that world, basically uh, put a, an ownership layer on top of what has been a truly creative, uh, very impressively um, uh, open-ended uh, world. Um, I think to the detriment of the art world. It's also, I think, to the detriment of the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the crypto world. Like, and so we, we, you start to see some stories about the extraordinary energy use and energy, I think, waste. Um, associated uh, with crypto generally, but with NFTs uh, in particular. So in part, what you have here is, um, is uh, sort of the burning of a lot of uh, trees or coal or uh, whatever the energy is that's consumed to make, to make, the, to, to make the Ethereum or, or the Bitcoin that underlies the, um, the blockchain that authenticates the NFT. Um, so what NFT does is it basically creates a single link between a chain of ones and zeros and some individual piece of art or a short video. Um, it's basically a way to authenticate uh, some statement about ownership around that piece of art. This is a quick definition of NFTs for listeners who might not be up to speed, although there's been so much about it recently uh, that it's, uh, it's probably pervasive in the, uh, in the culture. So what an NFT does different, a non-fungible token, what does different from a fungible token like Bitcoin, is that it um, identifies a particular a piece of art that says, I, LeBron James, authenticate, or NBA Top Shot, authenticate this particular video of me dunking. Or I, Beeple, authenticate this particular version of this digital art that I've created. So um, anybody can own that art. You know, your listeners can go online right now and download a perfect, exact version of the $69 million Beeple uh, uh, art NFT. So what you're not getting when you buy an NFT is the art. You're not getting, uh, so like in, in the olden days, a year ago, there was one Mona Lisa. There were a lot of postcards of the Mona Lisa, but there was one Mona Lisa. There was one Starry Night, a lot of postcards on college dorms of Starry Night, but one original. So what the NFT is trying to do is basically to uh, create an artificial form of scarcity, to create a single version of that uh, uh, Mona Lisa, or a single version of that Starry Night for online art, which is perfectly copyable, right? So my version of the Beeple art is exactly the same as yours and everybody else's. So what you're buying is not the Beeple art. Actually, when you buy an NFT, you don't buy the underlying copyright. You don't own that copyright. Uh, all that you buy is a statement from Beeple that he sold you the ability to say that you are the owner of that original piece. There's no actual original out there. All that you're buying is a stream of ones and zeros authenticating another stream of ones and zeros. It's, it's an interesting conversation there on uh, what is what is the value of this and you're saying, and are you taking the worst of, of all worlds there? Interesting perspective. It, yeah, it's really fascinating thinking about that as someone spent 
$69 million to say uh, is that statement of, of I own that or I have that, whereas everyone can take a screenshot, replicate the images, download this, the same files. And, and it's, it's really interesting to figure out and think about as how people, how we've collected art, how in general people have collected art. Now, when you think about NFTs, the market can get so flooded by very similar replicas, um, a ton of different things. So eventually, who knows, the price, the value might just drop and, and that $69 million might be worth almost nothing. Um, it's really fascinating, too. So the Golden State Warriors came out with uh, an NF NFT kind of package where they had this ring where you could buy this really fancy, like, spinning ring, but you also get a physical ring with that, too. And, and there's other uses that people are doing, whether it's ticketing or or different uses there. What is, what's your thought of having... Is that physical good that comes with it, just something extra to try and get people to value it more? Well, this goes actually back to our discussion about financial advisors, which is that um, something physical turns out to still be really important. And my skepticism in part about NFTs is to the extent that it really is this dematerialized uh, fantasy of a notion of ownership of art that is uh, free to all. Uh, that it, would, that isn't, shouldn't, it shouldn't be surprising that people are trying to attach something more physical to sort of, sort of to, uh, animate or create or catalyze that notion in people that they actually have something. So I, I mean, for me, again, you know, you guys are the, the specialists. You guys are going to be out there making the money. I'm just a mere professor. But it just looks to me a lot more like a tulip bulb fad. It looks like the ICO fad, the in, in, initial coin offering fad from a few years ago. Um, I don't see, I guess for me, the question will be, and maybe, maybe you guys will be the ones who develop this, is uh, once you start to see a robust, uh, secondary market, a resale market in NFTs uh, in some sector uh, where people there start to be some more stabilized prices, uh, then I would have more confidence this is not something that will simply disappear overnight. Uh, but without that secondary market, I don't think there's a second buyer for that $69 million people, $69 million people uh, down the road. I think that's basically uh, the market is largely driven by a lot of you know, guys in basements who've made a lot of money um, over the past uh, year. You know, a lot of the country has suffered, but people in finance have done extremely well. They have a lot of money. A lot of that money is tied up in Bitcoin and looking for places to park it. I, for me, the NFT market is basically a place that people are trying to park money, uh, like, the ICO, like the ICO market. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't count on it being around in five years. Very interesting. Michael Heller, a professor at Columbia Law, uh, talking about his book, Mine, uh, and where this digital asset NFTs, I think we'll come back to that. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We're just talking about um, non-fungible tokens and the and how NFTs, which is the new digital assets, the uh, part of this blockchain ecosystem, and, and Michael's a skeptic on some of these, thinks the ownership rules are the worst of art, worst of ownership. Uh, and, and Michael, as, as you think about where, the, where you think what's got people in this frenzy now, I mean, how do you think, why is the frenzy occurring? And, and you know, what, what, why do you think people have the narrative wrong? Well, the frenzy is... Um is really your guy's area of specialty more than mine. I, I look at ownership over a very long term. So in the book Mine, we come up with six simple stories, and they trace back to the Bible, and they trace back to our animal instincts. Uh, and I actually don't see a new seventh uh, form of ownership when I move to the online uh, world. So what I see is a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, there's something brand new. We have NFTs, we have crypto, we have blockchain, we have um, digital everything. Uh, what does it look like from the perspective of someone who thinks about ownership over a very long period of time? It actually isn't anything new. Uh, what we do see is a lot of concentration of ownership online. The sharing economy is you know, creating you know, mega companies like Uber and Airbnb, where we all stream much more of our lives rather than we own a flow of services rather than a stock. So I do see that as being a big uh, change. Uh, but the underlying uh, ownership structures themselves have not changed. As far as I can tell, there have always been these six simple stories, and uh, those will be the stories going forward. Now, the stories don't apply so well necessarily on, in the online world. Before the break, we talked about the, that the buy now button uh, doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, and I do think that a lot of our uh, sense of who we are still is tied up in uh, tangible ownership in a, way, in, a, uh, in a way that the online world isn't going to recreate. Like I, don't, I actually don't want to uh, rent or lease or license my wedding ring or, you know, lease my, my dog. I actually do think that the, there are, there's real value in physical, uh, tangible ownership, uh, even in a very uh, connected Internet world. Um, 
Uh, so for me, um, I'm a, part of why I'm a skeptic about NFTs is that it looks so much like uh, sort of manias uh, throughout financial history uh, that are driven, in this case, by sort of too much money on the sidelines looking for a place to invest rather than uh, sort of solving some underlying ownership problem that needs to be solved. Um, so I, so um, it, it may well be the case that blockchain is, for me, is still a technology in search of a killer app, um, but I don't see uh, the NFTs in particular as being uh, that killer app. I think that you own too little uh, from an NFT to really be something that's going to be valuable uh, for people in the secondary market uh, down the road where there'll be a robust uh, trace. too easy to create them. It's too easy to have close copycats. Uh, you get too little. You don't own the copyright. You don't own the underlying art. Uh, you don't have the right of publicity if somebody's image uh, is, uh, is in the NFT. Uh, you own too little, and what you own is too ephemeral uh, to be a sustainable form of ownership, seems to me. It's really interesting, just sticking on the you don't own the copyright or you don't own the art. Everyone, When you think of people buying these NFTs, and just like when I click that buy now button to, to buy an ebook for my Kindle, um, I, I feel like I own that. I know it's not a physical thing I can pull off the shelf, and I know they could just take it from me. But it feels like in the decentralized world and, and that whole idea of NFT that you that you do own it from just how we're told of, of you could buy it and use your Ethereum or cryptocurrencies to buy it. Um, can you explain a little bit more of, of why you don't own it? Well, you don't own any of the underlying images. So when Beeple sold the NFT, he did not sell the copyright. So he still owns the copyright to those images. He can transform them. He can um, he can do secondary works, he can do derivative works based on them, he can display them, he can perform them. All of the sort of underlying copyright doesn't transfer with NFT, it's completely independent. Uh, if the NFT has in it an image of a person, uh, that person's image uh, would be separately protected through something called the right of publicity in most states, which itself is a form of ownership like a copyright or a patent, which stays with the person. So what the NFT is, gives you is something much more limited even than the very limited form of online ownership that we start out with, which is what you get is a stream of ones and zeros saying that some person says that some version that, that the NFT points to, the NFT is a stream of ones and zeros that points to a different stream of ones and zeros, which is the online image, that that particular pointing is pointing to the original. But it's an original that's identical in every pixel to every other copy of it. So what you're getting is this really is just a statement about ownership and disconnected from any of the stuff that makes ownership meaningful in our lives. That's so fascinating. So if, if Jeremy released an NFT of himself, then not only do you not have the statement, but you don't even have, he has the likeness and, and all of that, those other parts of it. Because yeah, he can, he can still prevent you from displaying the image because of his right publicity. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the big, go ahead. No, you, you. I was gonna say I think the big use that I was waiting for was to see how people can display these pieces of art, and so even just hearing that and, and hearing that um, the originator, the creator, can display it differently, or even Jeremy can own the likeness of it, even if he sold this this uh, awesome headshot of himself. Um, is really fascinating. Yeah, we should do an it. NFT of this podcast, right? So we could do an NFT that basically pointed to the link for this podcast. Um, but what in that in the if we sold it, we would you know clear some Ethereum from it. Um, but the people who bought it uh, would not be able. We would we would still each of us be able to block the display of it through both copyright and through our individual rights of publicity. We, so it would be what they would own would be just a statement that they own the original of it and and uh, nothing more. Well. It's uh, another, maybe another way of getting paid since we don't get paid for doing the podcast. It's a uh, great, an interesting Listen, monetization. Well, you should be. We should let's 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 create an NFT and we can have your listeners. Uh, let, let's see what let's see what the podcast is worth to your listeners. Um, you know, maybe let's switch gears a little bit. I think it's interesting in in the book, and this is another place financial advisors can provide advice um, to, to to clients. Is is and one of there's a, a sort of big famous divorce happening right now. You got. Bill and Melinda Gates, um, and, and there's sort of speculation why they're getting divorced right now. Maybe w worries about how state taxes are changing and different things happening that they may be trying to get ahead of. But do you you talk a little bit about the importance of prenups and 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 when to do that before it's too late? Maybe talk through your your thoughts on all that. 
Sure. So in the book, we talk about six simple stories that everyone uses to clean everything. One of those six simple stories is family ownership. It's mine because I'm in the family. Uh, and we, we, have, we, we have a lot of intuitions about this. We say things like the meek shall inherit the earth. The truth is the meek shall inherit very little. In America, it turns out uh, that we have actually two separate legal systems around family, around marriage and divorce, uh, birth and death. Uh, so one is a system that applies to uh, to most of us, to the uh, people with ordinary amounts of uh, wealth and income, uh, and even reasonably well off. And there's, but there's a separate system a, um, that many of us don't know about. Maybe some of your listeners do. You have to be at a certain income, a certain wealth level, not the one percent, but the one percent of the one percent. This sort of kicks in at the thirty to $50 million uh, net worth uh, level. Once you're that rich, if you're above that level, uh, it turns out that a lot of taxation, which the rest of us owe, uh, becomes optional um, at that level. It's a separate legal system uh, that's done through uh, state law. Uh, In America, um, ownership is not federal law. Ownership is never defined in the U.S. Constitution. In this country, ownership is state law. And what that means is that certain states, uh, like uh, Nevada or Alaska, and in particular, South Dakota, have created an alternative system of law for wealthy people that makes uh, the payment of, resp- um, uh, of debt uh, largely uh, optional. Uh, debt to former spouses, uh, debt to children through uh, child custody obligations, debt to people that you've injured or business partners you've defrauded, and taxation to government. All of that becomes optional if you set up a lot of your wealth through um, uh, trust in states like South Dakota. Now, if you're super rich, you already know this. You already use uh, these trusts. Uh, but some of your listeners may not know uh, that South Dakota in recent years has actually displaced Switzerland, uh, Switzerland and the Cayman Islands as the go-to place uh, to hide uh, a, uh, large sums of uh, family, uh, family uh, wealth. Um, actually, a lot of international wealth now also comes to South Dakota rather than staying in the Caymans. Uh, why? Because what, the, what, what South Dakota has done is created this alternate system, uh, which basically is aimed at, uh, at centimillionaires and billionaires uh, to shield them from any kind of personal responsibility or uh, taxation. So it's possible that um, the uh, Gates have some of their uh, wealth tied up in those state trusts. I have no knowledge uh, at all if that is the case. Uh, they might not use um, uh, South Dakota Trust. They might use Alaska or um, uh, or uh, Nevada ones, Delaware ones that are, have similar uh, similar effect. Um, but uh, if you're a very wealthy family in this country, uh, you really operate at this point by an almost completely separate set of ownership rules uh, from all of uh, the rest of us. So prenups um, are um, actually in this country. There's some stigma attached to prenups. We think, boy, when we're getting married. Uh, it's wrong for us to talk about uh, how we divide the money up when we get divorced. In America, only about 3% of couples use a prenup before they get married, often in cases where there's been a previous marriage or where there's a lot of assets of family business uh, uh, to think about. But that's not true around the world. So, for example, in many Scandinavian countries, the number is closer to 30 or 40% uh, using prenups. And it actually should be uh, much higher in this country uh, as well. You know, roughly half of marriages uh, end in divorce. And actually, I think it's a very loving statement. Uh, with you and your spouse as you're entering into a marriage is to think about at a time when you're very much in love, what would be a fair way to divide assets uh, in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, if it comes to pass down the road, that there will be a divorce. So I think uh, in this country, prenups are substantially underused uh, by comparison with uh, what they should be used, given especially that we're getting married at an older age. We're getting married typically with uh, two career couples in many cases where there are more complicated families and complicated asset uh, structures uh, to think about going into uh, marriage. No, I think that was a really excellent point. And I've seen people get offended on on asking for that and, and taking this deep offense um, when your point is this is the time to do it, you know, and uh, it's, it's interesting, the little the low percentage. Um, you also talk a little bit in the book about solving climate change with ownership rules. Um, and, and that's really a very hot topic today. Um, how do we improve the environment? Where are we on that? Maybe you could talk through some of the, the ownership rules that you think might really help solve these kind of issues. Well, this is one that's, um, I think, the, the problem here is too few markets. We, we have this sort of romantic notion that, the, that if we don't own uh, scarce resources, 
uh, we have some sort of collective care for them. But it turns out uh, with the environment, if um, trees are, if anybody can chop a tree down, uh, people start chopping the Amazon down. Why? Because forest dwellers in the Amazon don't own the trees. Trees are worth more to them chopped down than they are standing. Uh, fish are worth more in your boat uh, than they are uh, in the ocean. So everyone races to chop trees or take out fish or pollute the air uh, in a world where there's too little ownership. So one of the sort of secrets about ownership engineering is that it, has be- it is uh, the most powerful tool that we have come up with to actually slow climate change, is to have more ownership, not less, of assets, of resources, of natural resources that we care about. So um, this actually brings us to a different one of the stories. We, we talked about first in time, kids on the playground. We talked about possession being nine-tenths of the law. We talked about family ownership. Another form of ownership is what we call attachment. It's mine because it's attached to something mine. So forest dwellers in much of the world don't own the trees that are attached to the land that they control. So it turns out that one real solution for climate change is what, uh, is what we call as-if ownership. We treat the forest dwellers or the fisher people as if they own those trees or those fish. So we tell them, we will pay you not to chop the tree down. That's what cap and trade does. That's what tradable um, uh, emissions rights do. We have a series of um, forms of ownership where we attach ownership to people who, who have some underlying resource and tell them, we'll pay you not to fish. We'll pay you not to chop the tree down. Or we'll pay you um, to uh, take the fish based on the a cat share, the number of fish that you own before the season uh, actually starts. The most sustainable fisheries in the world today all use a form of ownership engineering that we call attachment. That's called cat shares, where the boat is told you own you know, one share, which lets you get you know, 100 tons of this kind of fish um, over the course of the season. You allocate the uh, resource before the season starts rather than having a demolition derby first in time uh, race to capture fish like in Deadliest Catch, like in that TV reality show that was both deadly for fisher, uh, fishermen, for crew, and terrible for the fishery. Um, we actually have a very safe fishery now in Alaska for crab fishing, which is based on this form of attachment. So it turns out that if you, paradoxically and maybe surprisingly to some of your listeners, um, the, um, the real solution to uh, climate change is more ownership, more ownership of uh, trees, of clean air or dirty air. If you, if you make pollution ownable, then companies have a reason to economize on pollution. Uh, if they can figure out a way to pollute less, they can sell their prim- pollution permits to some other, uh, some other coal emitter, and uh, you end up with less pollution overall, and you end up forcing technology to actually um, drive the market in ownership of pollution. And that's sort of what people talk about these... So. Go ahead, Matt. Go ahead, Jay. So that's what people oh, are talking so about with the, uh, the carbon credits and these carbon futures that people are, are talking about, a lot, lot for sure in Europe, um, in terms of how they price this, this carbon. Right. So the way that these carbon markets work is what you're trying to do is, um, inter- I mean, to use the economics language, trying to internalize the externality of the pollution and of the, uh, at, both ends of the, um, at both ends of that transaction. So when I fly in an airplane, uh, the full cost of me flying, which is the pollution that I'm creating through uh, burning all that jet fuel, isn't priced into my ticket. So part of what these carbon offsets do is they, when they work, is they charge me the full economic cost of my pollution. That becomes part of the price of my ticket. But then the way that they offset the other half of that is that the money that I pay to internalize that cost then gets paid to offset my, uh, my consumption of jet fuel by having more carbon sink, more carbon sequestration at the other end. Uh, uh, carbon uh, is, uh, works globally. So um, we can fly in, you know, from here to Philadelphia, to New York, and we can offset that by having trees that are not chopped down in the Amazon. It has, um, it has the same, it, it works to offset my flight here. Um, but to have those trees not be chopped down in the, in the Amazon, the way that, the, that we need to do that is to pay the people in the Amazon not to chop the tree down, to make the tree there worth more standing than uh, chopped down and converted to farmland. So carbon offsets basically capture the external cost, the, the full cost of me flying, and take that resource and then use it to pay off the people who would otherwise uh, chop the tree down, to sort of close the loop on the carbon cycle. 
We're talking with Michael Heller, author of a book called Mine, uh, and how those those hidden rules of ownership change our lives. Uh, Matt, what were you going uh, to jump in there with before? Oh, it's, I think it's really fascinating when you think of the the offsetting, the different like pollution, carbon use. Is there a way when that ownership can turn bad, Michael? Is there something that we need to think about when you think of paying someone to not chop down the trees and having them have that sense of ownership? Is is there a way that that can go completely wrong and, and go the wrong way? Well, this is an area where I'm a uh, where I maybe a little bit out of the mainstream. I I, I think that, for example, conservation easements. Uh, 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 are not well designed in this country. So we have a lot of conservation easements, uh, which do a lot of good, right? They preserve a lot of land, they keep a lot of areas green, uh, and that has some real uh, value. Uh, but the danger for conservation easements is that they conserve the wrong land. So as cities grow, we actually do want that land at the urban fringe to be developed. And we, we want people to live closer to cities. Cities are much more energy efficient the denser they are. So a conservation easement that makes it very hard to later sell that easement and develop that land and maybe replace the easement somewhere further out, I think is ownership gone wrong. So one of the dangers of ownership design is that, like, like there, something that sounds so good and mostly is very valuable, like conservation easements, can actually go wrong when they become too inflexible, when they, become, when they basically lock land markets in place in, a, in urban areas where actually what you, what you want from a sort of a um, social welfare standpoint. Uh, is a much more dynamism, much more infill, much more growth, uh, uh, close, and not having these pockets of, of, of green belts uh, that basically make people jump over them and build further out, which exponentially increases, for example, commuting and energy costs for cities. So ownership design is, is can be it can absolutely go wrong, um, but it requires sort of paying attention to uh, who gets what when you uh, when you create um, when you create uh, any kind of ownership. Who gets what on the playground? Who gets what when you download a book? Who gets what uh, on the forest? Who gets what um, in cities? The um, final question that you talk a little bit about the digital world and and ownership of your data. And there's a lot, a lot of things on when you're when you're selling your things like, you know, 23andMe with your jeans. Who owns that? Well, you know, you're we'll talk a little bit about you becoming the customer in, in some of these situations. Right, so this, um, let me just make one point here. Um, on, on the book's website, we're talking about MINE, um, how the hidden rules of ownership control our lives. On our website, mindthebook.com, we have a number of videos, all two-minute videos, that go through a bunch of these stories, including the one about genes. So when you swab your cheek uh, to uh, send in your, um, uh, your saliva to get, uh, to get your DNA, um, what you don't realize is that 23andMe, Ancestry.com, they're trying to... They, they, they're, you're not really the consumer of that transaction. You're really actually the product. What they're doing is they're collecting your data and aggregating it into large databases. The real product of 23andMe and Ancestry.com are access to their database um, for pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies that need hundreds of millions of aggregated D uh, sets of DNA for them to be able to do drug research and insurance pricing. The that is the reason that they... Um, Get charged so little for 20, to, to, um, to decode your data. It's because what they're trying to do is basically get you into the database for the real product, which is, uh, the, uh, which is uh, the insurance and pharmaceutical research, which is fine, uh, but you should, you, know, you should be aware that that's what's happening when you're sending it in. Whenever there's any new resource, whether it's your clickstream online where you go on, around the Internet uh, or um, you know, uh, uh, air pollution, or your DNA data, where whenever that's true, there will be ambiguity about the owner, and someone, some company will step in and assert ownership, which is what 23andMe and Ancestry.com have done there. Michael, this has been a great conversation. We just got Professor Siegel for final few minutes here. I'm going to turn to him, but thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets today. It's been such a pleasure being with you all. Thanks, Michael. Professor, we've got uh, three minutes on final wrap. Uh, we had the jobs report today. Any, any quick thoughts on what we're seeing? Yeah, so my, my summary, this is a, the low number was because employers could not get their workers because there's just not enough, and I definitely think the, despite denials by Biden and Yellen, I definitely think the unemployment insurance is one factor why they're not, all the fiscal support is another factor why they're just not responding to record job openings. I think this is uh, just giving an excuse for the Fed to be even more inflationary. 
uh, and wait longer than they should. And as I commented just three minutes ago on CNBC, the 10-year yield is now higher than it was the minute before this, uh, you know, terrible uh, jobless report uh, was uh, released. So, you know, I I think next week uh, I'm really going to look at that consumer and producer price index. I think that's Tuesday and Wednesday. I think that's going to be really telling. The next two or three months are are, are the most important, but uh, we, I think we will begin to see that inflation uh, actually uh, in next week's uh, releases. Are you surprised you see some of these growth stocks move around on bad news for the jobs is good news for growth yeah. stocks? They're moving on interest rates. The biggest motif now for, the, for these high-tech stocks, and not so much the FANG, which are, but, you know, when we really get the, the ones that are selling on, you know, 200 times revenues and not earnings, and since their cash flows are so far, it's an interest rate story. I mean, they popped right when that interest rate went down. They softened a little bit, but most stock traders went home Friday afternoon, um, uh, you know, I, uh, as, as yields uh, kind of move back up. Uh, but it, they're moving on yields. So that's the reason. So, you know, anything that sends the yields up will send the growth stocks down and vice versa and, and give you a value, growth, growth, value uh, situation. Of course, the vaccine and the, and the cases and all that are, are other news that, that, uh, that go along with that. And, and I think that front is, uh, you know, is, is, uh, is going uh, you know, well for the reopening trade. Yeah, we see gold doing the same thing, sort of moving with rates. Yep. Yeah, gold because, you know, it doesn't have the... Uh, uh, a yield, it will, its opportunity cost is, is measured by rates. That's classical. It will move like that. We could ask the question about Bitcoin, um, which is up almost 4% today. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's in a different realm. Yeah, very good, Professor. Always, uh, always great to get a few minutes of, of comments from you. Thank you very much for waiting. Um, you know, so I've been, uh, this is Jeremy Schwartz. We had Matt Kress, who is Director of Advisor Innovation. A really interesting show today talking about these rules of ownership across a lot of different areas. And we had the skeptic, uh, you get pros, you get cons on these digital assets. We're going to do another podcast on the opposite side. People sort of super bullish on uh, on ETH and some of these crypto assets in, in one of our, our follow-up shows. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to thank our producer, Powdy Hall, our, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, and you can listen to us on our Behind the Market podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.